So Matthew chapter 2, Matthew chapter 2. Um, we began our study last week in the, math, in the Gospel of Matthew, and uh, we find ourselves this week, we went through chapter 1 last time, and uh, this week the big challenge for me is many times is what do you leave in and what do you leave out? There's going to be a lot of new information uh, that, that maybe some of us have never heard about or, or, or thought about in this chapter. So I'll, I'll try my best not to overwhelm us with information, but if you find yourself getting bored, I want you to know, and if you start checking out, God will make sure that your team does not win today. So that's, so just, uh, I put, just kidding. So anyways, so we left off last week in in, uh, Matthew chapter one, and uh, Mary was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And uh, he, uh, God tells Mary that this is what he's going to do. And uh, Joseph is told to take Mary as his wife. And we talked about how he immediately took Mary as his wife because that was for her protection and because not everybody believed the virgin birth story. Well, our story picks up today in Matthew 2, and some time has passed. So I want you to write down at the top of your outline, as Matthew 2 begins, Jesus is about two years old. Jesus is about two years old. And uh, again, some of this will, will be new information for some of us. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of our understanding of what took place ha- um, comes from the Christmas cards that we've seen and some of the cartoons we've seen, but uh, hopefully this will add some, some context. So chapter 2, verse 1, I'm going to read the first three verses with your pen in hand. He says, now after, you want to underline the word after, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, underline Bethlehem, of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi, some of your Bibles will say wise men. Uh, arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who is born king of the Jews? And I've underlined that. For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now the, the star didn't appear going east. It was while they were in the east and they followed the star and the star led them to the west. But that's where they saw it when they were in the east. Now verse three, it says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And then I want you to underline in all Jerusalem with him. So there's a couple of things as we get into our story today to to help bring some context. First of all, we all know that Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is a Hebrew compound word. It's Bethlehem, and I put it there in your outline. It just means house of bread, which would be very fitting because Jesus later on, he would talk about himself. He would say, I am the bread of life. So the one who would be the bread of life will be born in the, in the city that's called the house of bread. So that, that'll be important for our study as we travel through. So the question is, why was Herod and all of Jerusalem so troubled uh, that, that these magi have shown up? And I would suggest to you, if it's just three guys on a donkey, nobody is going to be troubled. So the question is, who are the magi? Well, the, the magi, there on your outline from Thayer's Bible Dictionary, I'll give the definition and, and then uh, some, some context. Magi, or magus in the original language, was the name given by the Babylonians, or the Chaldeans, the Medes, the Persians, and others to the wise men, the teachers, the priests, the physicians, astrologers, seers, interpreters of dreams, augurs, soothsayers, and sorcerers. They, it was a special class of people who were from Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq, and Persia, which is modern-day Iran, in ancient times. And they were a very, very powerful group. And they were considered the wise men. And uh, they, they were extremely powerful. One commentator says that the Magi, the Magi were so powerful that historians tell us that no Persian was ever able to become king except under two conditions. 
One, he had to master the scientific and religious discipline of the Magi. And two, he had to be approved of and crowned by the Magi. So it's important to note that that these Magis were known in that time in the ancient East as the kingmakers. And you want to write that down. They were known as the kingmakers. They were considered the wise men of the day. They were astrologers, astronomers, uh, and, and, and they were a, a very, very special class of these guys. They, they were the ones who would interpret dreams. And in the Old Testament, when Daniel is taken to Babylon, he becomes one of the Magi. As a matter of fact, he becomes one of the leaders of the Magi, the, the wise men of that time. And so he wrote the book of Daniel, and that book of Daniel the Magi had, and they had apparently read that, were very familiar with the prophecies of the coming Christ. So we don't know how many of these Magi show up there in Jerusalem. It could be 300. We, we really don't know. Uh, we, our Christmas cards tell us that there's three because of the gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Those were the gifts. That's not the number of the Magi. So it's just one of those cultural things. Another thing that we find is that these magi have traveled somewhere between 600 and 900 miles from the east to come with with a a, a vast army. Uh, This vast army is the reason that Herod and all Jerusalem is concerned. If Herod gets up and and in the morning he looks outside and there's three guys on a donkey, nobody really cares. And those three guys on a donkey, if they said, we want to see the king, that's just not going to happen. But you get up in the morning and you see that there's a vast army outside of your city, all of a sudden you're concerned and all Jerusalem with you. Does that make sense? So so they traveled with a a fairly large security force, an, an army. Again, they were very familiar with the prophet Daniel, and Daniel had laid out exactly when the Messiah would be born. And apparently they had read the book. That's how they know to come worship the one who would be known as the king of the Jews. They would know that because they got that from Daniel's writing. Well, that was 500 years before, so they began waiting over that time for that time for that Messiah, the Christ, to appear. One day, as uh, it draws near as, as he's born, the, this magi who'd been waiting for his arrival hundreds of miles away, they, they receive a very, very special sign, a very special sign, a star in the east. Now, uh, this star could be a star, very possible, but it appears that it, there's something more going on, that there's something supernatural taking place. Some suggest that it's a star, some suggest that it's an angel, and uh, that, that has uh, some possibility to it because angels are often uh, depicted in the Bible as stars. In the book of Revelation, I put a verse there in your outline. It says, the fifth angel sounded and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. So some people suggest that this was an angel appearing uh, as a star in the east and they knew that they had to follow. There is no um, nothing to indicate that anybody other than the Magi saw this. So as they come to to Jerusalem, this is going to be new information to the people in Jerusalem. They were not looking at a star. So this is something that they were following. The, uh, again, they travel 600 to 900 miles. This is going to take months and months. Some suggest a minimum of six months to travel that far with a, with a military. And they're going to show up again with an, an army outside of Jerusalem. It gets Herod's attention 
And Herod is the king who's been appointed by the Romans. He's not Jewish. He's what they call Idumean. Now that means, if you've been around the Bible, you know that there was Jacob and there was Esau, and uh, they had a hatred for one another, or at least their descendants had this great hatred for one another, and it continued to grow. Well, this Herod is from Esau's line. He's an Idumean, and so there's this ancient hatred in between them. He is also a very evil king in the sense that uh, he's had at least nine wives, and that doesn't make him evil. It makes him relationally challenged. But one of the things that he did was that at times he had a wife executed, and he even had some of his, some of his children executed. He, he was ruthless. He, he was very, very evil. So uh, that's the story there. In verse 4, we're going to pick it up. And it says, Gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes, the, peop- the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what was written by the prophet. And they quote Micah, You, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you will come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, it's interesting that the religious establishment is right there in Jerusalem. They know what the Bible says, but over time they had become very complacent about what the Bible said concerning the coming Messiah. So let me just give some context and show you a map. If you were to look at a a map of Jerusalem, you'd see Nazareth to the north. It's actually 70 miles as the crow flies, but it's about 90 miles if you walk it, just because of the zigzagging of the the road and the hills. Jerusalem is down at the bottom, and about six miles south of Jerusalem is this town of Bethlehem. So six miles to the north there in Jerusalem, the religious leaders, they have the scriptures, they're involved in going to temple, they're doing religious things, and uh, the Magi show up and they tell of the, the, the coming of the king of the Jews, they tell of this incredible sign that they have been following, and they travel 900 miles to worship the king of the Jews. Sadly, the ones in Jerusalem who had the Bible who should have known, they won't go six miles to see what's really going on. So tuck, tuck that away. And so whether it's complacency or hostility upon the, the religious leadership, we don't really know. But we do know this, that the Bible says just as they responded to Jesus in that time, it's going to be kind of a picture of what it's going to be like in the church at the time that Jesus comes back. We have the scriptures and uh, the Bible says what it says, but the church at that time will be largely complacent about the things that are taking place. And, and many people will, will miss that. And you and I live in the most incredible generation that the world has ever seen because we literally live in the time where prophecies are coming true before our very eyes. Well, verse 7, it says, Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them, and you want to underline, the exact time the star appeared. He's planning something. He wants to know the exact time. And we're going to see that it's been two years, two years. Verse 8, with your pen in hand. And he went, he sent to them, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go search carefully for the child. And I want you to underline child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way and the star, which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was, underline child. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Apparently this star 
did not shine all the time. It, it apparently appeared at certain times. It appeared in the east, and uh, they knew they had to follow it. And then it appeared, it brought them to Jerusalem, they followed it there. And then once they get to Jerusalem, they see the star again, and then they rejoice, is, is the idea. Also, if this is something supernatural, this, uh, this star is not something that has to be at night. This could be something that was bright to them in the daytime. Uh, our Christmas cards show it at night, and so it's not a huge issue, but you know, it, that's not necessarily how it had to be. After coming into the house, verse 11, and I want you to underline the word house, they saw the child. They saw the child. Um, did we underline child in verse 9? Okay, well, if you did, good. If not, underline it in verse 11. Coming to the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshiped him, opening their treasures, and I've underlined the word treasures, they presented him gold, him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And uh, so, so here you have in Bethlehem, six miles away, this tiny little village, this army shows up. And uh, now the, the star is now over the house. And what I, what I want you to highlight or just be aware of is that we're no longer in the manger. This has been two years. Now we're in a house. So it's a very, very different word. Also, it's important because it's two years later, the word child keeps appearing. And we've underlined that a couple of times. Jesus is no longer a baby. It's a very different word in the original language. So there on your outline, I put the word for, for child. It just means a young child, a little boy, or a little girl. So Jesus is almost two years old at this point, running around in a, in a diaper or whatever this they used. And these magi, they show up and they give certain gifts. And those gifts reflect their understanding as to who this baby is. So they've already said he's the king of the Jews. They have Daniel's, the book of Daniel, and they, they're familiar with that. But one of the things that they give, and go ahead and write this down, they give him gold because that's what you give a king. So that recognizes him as a king. But then they give him frankincense. Now, frankincense is a, uh, it, it's an incense that you would burn in the temple, and it was only burned by the priests. So they gave incense to him to recognize that part of his life, there is a priestly ministry. So they recognize him as a priest. And if you know anything about the ancient Jewish people, the kings were from one tribe, which would be the tribe of Judah, and the priests would be from the tribe of Levi, and they didn't mix uh, as far as you couldn't have a king come from this tribe or, or a priest come from that tribe until one day the Messiah would come and he would be both a king and their high priest. And so they recognized that. But then they give him myrrh. Now myrrh is what you would use. It's a spice that's used for embalming. So when you took a body, it'd be very expensive and you would embalm the body and pack the body in myrrh. So they recognized, they gave that to him because they recognized his death, what he would do. And you want to write that down. So they understood who this one was. And uh, I, I had us underline there in verse 11, we underlined the word treasures. The word there just means wealth. And this would represent uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of treasure that they would bring to Jesus. You don't travel 900 miles with an army to drop off 20 bucks. You just don't do that. So they're dropping off a, a, an incredible gift, which is going to be used later on for what God's going to do next. This is going to support the family probably for a couple of years. Verse 12, it says, 
having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. So they just head out another way. One of the things I want to just highlight here real quick, we're not going to spend a lot of time on it, but write this down. Here we see that God speaks to those who worship him for who he is. They're worshiping him as the king of the Jews, as the coming Messiah. They're not worshiping him because of what he's done for them, because he hasn't done anything for, for them. He's a baby. Uh, they're not worshiping to get something from him, because again, he's a baby. He, he's he's not, not at that place yet. They're just worshiping him for who he is. In modern church world, one of the things that we have to be very careful of is making sure that we worship him for who he is, not for what he has done for us or what we want to get him to do. So we we notice that, that God speaks to those who worship him for who he is. Now imagine what this does for Mary, and this is one of the things that we don't typically think about. Last week, Mary was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. The angel comes to Joseph, says, take her as your wife, do it right now. That was for her protection. Not everybody uh, believed the virgin birth story or the conception story. And what's also interesting is in that town, it's not recorded that God speaks to anybody else. So this is just something that he's revealed to Joseph, something that he's revealed to Mary. So they go down to Bethlehem, and we all know that story. And, and so while they're there, we notice that it's two years later, and they haven't gone back to Nazareth. And most conclude that the reason they haven't gone back to Nazareth is because Mary's reputation isn't so great back in Nazareth as they haven't believed the, the conception story or, or the virgin birth story. So at some point, they look at each other and they say, you know, we're here in Bethlehem and no, nobody knows the story. We could stay here and we could build a new life and we don't have to explain everything all the time and nobody's looking suspiciously at me or, or nobody's looking suspiciously at, at Mary, uh, Joseph would say. So, the, the, so very possibly they've stayed there for that reason. And nobody has confirmed, they haven't heard from God in a couple of years, but you can imagine that day when these guys show up with an army and they come and they worship and they bring gifts, and they're the only ones who seem to recognize God really is doing something. So God sends some, some uh, confirmation along the way that would be very encouraging to Mary. Well, uh, again, verse 13 and 14, I pick it up, and it says, now when they had gone, and I'm going to suggest that this is that same night, that same night, when they had gone, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and then underlined while it was still night. It's that night, and they left for Egypt. One of the things that we find, I won't spend a lot of time on it, but God always speaks in an order. So here what we find is God is speaking to Joseph as the head of the family. Go ahead and write that down. In our story, God only speaks to Mary one time supernaturally. But he speaks to Joseph one time last chapter and three times in this chapter supernaturally. And the reason for that is, is, is that God always speaks through an order. Now there's something about Joseph that makes it easy for God to speak. 
there on your outline from last week, it says, and Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man. Righteous just means his heart was right with God. He wasn't a jerk. He was the type of guy that, that would just do whatever it is that God told him to do. So as the father of the family, and Matthew's writing to a very Jewish audience, as the father of the family, it was the father in the family who was responsible for the provision and the security of the family. And so that way then, and and certainly from God's perspective now, some hold that the reason that God only speaks to Mary one time, but Joseph four times, is so that we don't overemphasize Mary's role in in, in the story. Her role is great, but you don't want to overemphasize it. People go to to, uh, strange places with that. So in this case, uh, God tells him to get up and go. Go ahead and write this down. God speaks for protection. He says, get up, go, and it's still night, you know, and let's go. Another thing that we notice is that God speaks to those who will do what he says. God speaks to those who do what he says. One of the things that we find in the Bible is God doesn't speak to people who are curiosity shoppers. They're people who've already decided, I'm going to do whatever it is that God says. You and I live in a society where many people say, I want to hear from God. But when God speaks in the area of, say, morality, they say, well, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Or God speaks in the area of finances, they say, well, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And and it goes down the line. God speaks to those who will do what he says. In this case, one of the other things I find interesting, and you want to write this down, is that acting on what God says will mean letting go of what's known and stepping into the unknown. They have a house, they have friends, Joseph is working, life is comfortable, they've never been to Egypt, never wanted to go to Egypt, but God says now it's time to go. Another thing that I notice in this, and you tell me if you found this in your life, but uh, God's plan usually involves leaving our comfort zone. Am I the only person who's ever experienced this? So, so here, here's part of the story that, that many times we kind of overlook as to what else could possibly be going on. Last week, Joseph takes Mary to be his wife. And uh, the chapter ended with this verse, and it said, he kept her a virgin, and then I want you to underline that word until. Does everybody see that word until? You want to underline that. Now what that, and then she, until she gave birth to a son, called his name Jesus. You and I have the understanding that when he takes Mary, she remains a virgin until. And then after that, they have a very normal, natural family, uh, physical relationship. Later on, Matthew will say this on your outline from Matthew 13. He will say, is not this the carpenter's son, that's Joseph, and not his mother called Mary, mom, and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, four brothers, and his sisters, are they not all with us? At least two sisters. So we we would hold that Jesus grew up in a family that has at least seven kids, four brothers and at least two sisters, maybe, maybe more. This is two years after Jesus was born. So there's some possibilities here. Uh, because they began normal relationship. It could be here in this house, you have Jesus, and Jesus at this point may have a little brother or a little sister. Uh, it could be that, that Jesus is in the house and Mary is pregnant with the next one, 
And it could also be possible that Jesus is in the house, Jesus has a little brother and or sister, and Mary is pregnant. And uh, all of those are, are very, very possible in the scenario. So when God says it's time to head down to Egypt, would you say that's out of your comfort zone, if that's the case? How many of you have never even thought of that as a possibility before? Nobody cares. Okay. <laughs> so, so Joseph says, I'm loading the donkey and we're going to go. So let me show you a map as to what this journey means, because they're going to have to travel quite some time. They are in Bethlehem, and they're going to have to travel down to the south to Egypt, and most agree that they go to Alexandria, which is in Egypt. And the reason they would go to Alexandria in Egypt is because there is a group, or uh, over a million Jewish people, there's Jewish schools, Jewish business, so they would fit right in. But this is going to be a journey on foot of about 400 miles, so you want to write that down also. This is going to take at least six weeks. And the reason they have to get up and they have to go right now is because Bethlehem is only six miles from Jerusalem. Early in the morning, Herod is going to find out. He's going to do some things. They realize we have to clear the vicinity and we have to do that right now. Does that make sense? Verse 15, he says, um, so Joseph got up, uh, verse 14, he got up and took the child and his mother and it was still night, left for, for Egypt. Verse 15, he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the prophet had spoken uh, by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. And uh, this is a, a reference where Jesus is more identifying with the, uh, the nation of Israel and what they did. And that verse is found there in Hosea. In verse 16, it says, then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew, and I've underlined that, all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all the vicinity from two years old and under. And now I want you to underline this, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. So that, that's where you get that two-year time period from. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. It was a, it was a ter- terrible thing. So early in the morning, Herod finds out he sends the soldiers into Bethlehem to wipe out all the male children two years old and under. If you watch the movies of this, you will see the soldiers coming in and you get the feeling that this is hundreds if not thousands of children. Bethlehem is a village that's somewhere between three and five acres in size. Some of you have yards larger than than Bethlehem. So when you look at the actual number, it's somewhere probably between 10 to 30 children. That's not to minimize that. It's a horrendous, horrific act, but more just to give a, a more accurate perspective. That's probably the, the, the number of children, uh, terrible as, as that is. In verse 18, he quotes from Jeremiah, and uh, Jeremiah references something all the way back in Genesis. Jeremiah says it's going to be something in the future, and uh, it doesn't really jump out to you and I as Protestants, but if you were Jewish, you might find it uh, rather grabbing. So let me just uh, uh, read this little passage here. He quotes from Jeremiah, and I put that there on your outline. And Jeremiah refers to something that happened many years before, and Jeremiah sees this as an allusion to something that will happen in the future that takes place here. 
And the story is told, Jacob in the Old Testament, who later is called Israel, he has a wife named Rachel. They are coming into the land of Eat, into the land of Israel. And uh, here's what it says. Rachel is pregnant. And it says, as her soul was departing, for she died, that she named him, this child that was born, Ben-Oni. And I've put in parentheses there, that means son of my sorrow. So as the women there in Bethlehem have this experience and they're losing their children, they begin to respond, this is the son of my sorrow. That, and that would be Hebrew way of thinking. But his father called him Benjamin. And I've put the definition there. That means son of my right hand. So out of that, on the one hand, you have the son of sorrow. The other one coming out of that is the son of my right hand. And then it says, so Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And you want to underline that. So there, 2,000 years before, an event took place that Jeremiah saw as having a future fulfillment or at least an illusion. So again, uh, thinking very Jewish, that would really catch their eyes. So Joseph and Mary, they travel 400 miles to Egypt, again, probably to this town of Alexandria. This is going to take a couple of months. they, They get there after a couple of months. They settle in. They're probably there for a year or so. Uh, God finally speaks again, and we're going to pick it up in verse 19. And it says, when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go into the land of Israel for those, and I've underlined that, who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother and came to the land of Israel. Now, He comes to the land of Israel, travels 400 miles back. Again, this is another six weeks at least, could be longer than that. Uh, We don't know, but Mary could be pregnant again and have another child. We we really don't know. So this family may be growing as, uh, as, as as it's going. Verse 22, they come into the land of Israel. But then it says, but when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee. Galilee's to the north, back up to Nazareth. And he came and lived in a city called Nazareth. And this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. So Mary and Joseph began their journey up in the north in this town of Nazareth. Mary's reputation isn't that great. They go down to Bethlehem. They stay there a couple of years. They go down to Egypt. They might be there a couple of years. They come back and God says, now I want you to go all the way back up to Nazareth. So just for perspective, go ahead and write this down, that Mary and Joseph have been away somewhere between three and five years. I'm more of the five-year thinker, but some suggest it could be uh, as uh, little as as, uh, three years. So if I can go ahead and put that map up one more time of Nazareth, the other one. We've left Egypt. There it is. So you can see, so they travel 400 miles back up to around Jerusalem. Now they have to travel another 90 miles or so to the north to come to this town of Nazareth. The interesting thing about Nazareth is that it's never mentioned in the Old Testament. Nazareth is a town when God's people came back into the land after what was called the Babylonian captivity some of them came to this little place and they said, we're going to live here, turned into a village, and they called it Nazareth. Uh, 
net, we would say Netzareth, but Nazareth. And uh, the word Nazar, in our, or Netzer rather, in the, the original language is a very interesting word because it, the word means branch. And so it's a very messianic uh, verse. As a matter of fact, they had a prophecy about this one who would come one day and he would be the Messiah. And uh, I've put part of the prophecy there on your outline. You should read the whole prophecy later on. I'm just going to give you two verses. And it says from Isaiah, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, which is uh, David the king's father. From his roots, a branch, and that word in the original language is netzer. Does everybody see that? A branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and power, and it goes on. So the one who would become the bread of life will be born in the house of bread, but he will be raised as the branch that would come up in the town that is literally called the branch. And so God puts all of these little details in there, and Matthew wants to connect the dots for the Jewish, the Jewish people. That's the chapter. But I wanted to say a couple of other things just before we wrap up. By the way, did that put you to sleep? I mean, what are you going to say, right? I mean, you can't really say but how many of you saw something say you'd never heard before? Good, good, good. Um, yeah, I, I love learning the things that, that we, never, we never really think of. That, that just does it for me. One of the things I notice in here is that God is speaking to certain people and he's not speaking to certain people. And there are certain things that we see in the people that he speaks to that we don't see in the people that he doesn't. And they're very, very different. And so we noticed a few things along the way. And one of the things that I wanted to highlight is I notice in the Bible that God tends to give what you and I would call the next step. Go ahead and write that down. Did you see how Joseph and Mary are told to go down to Egypt? That's all they know. Then they're called to come back to Israel. They come back to Israel and they go, wait a minute, this isn't right. And then God gives the next step. Now I want you to go all the way up to Nazareth. One of the things I learn about God is that he doesn't, he tends to not give step A, B, C, D, and E. He just says, this is your next step. One of the things that we learn in following him is he brings us to the place where you and I are willing to take the next step, even if we don't have it all completely worked out. That's what it means to grow in faith. If we had it all worked out, it would require no faith. So we noticed that. We noticed that God spoke to those who worshiped him for who he was. Uh, we, we noticed that God speaks to those whose heart is right before him. Uh, we noticed that he spoke to those who would act on what he said. And again, you and I live in a church age where it's very common for people to say, I want to know what God says. And, and, uh, but then they say, but I'm not doing that. And so that they don't really hear from God all that much. I also notice in this that God didn't speak to the one who was hostile to what God was doing, and that would be Herod. And I get that. But I also see that with the scribes and the Pharisees and all the religious leadership there, they had the scriptures, they were doing the religious thing, they were involved, uh, but they were complacent. And I noticed that God doesn't really speak to the spiritually, spiritually complacent. You know what you do with that? I just, I just noticed that in that. Um, so maybe 
you're here today and you say, well, I'm, I'm not hostile and I, I really don't want to be spiritually complacent. You know, I don't see myself as spiritually complacent, um, but I'm not really hearing from God in the, in the way that, that I would like. One of the things that I have learned about God is that he says, do this, and, and then whether we do or we don't, he doesn't speak again until we take care of what he said. Uh, so, so what I always practice in my life, and you want to write this down, when not hearing, I ask, what's the last thing that God said? Because, because he's God, he doesn't say, this is your next step. And we go, you know, I don't, I don't want to, I'm not doing that. He doesn't say, oh, okay, well then, then how about this step over here? He's not codependent. He just says, this is the next step. And until we take care of that, he doesn't speak again. So I, I would want to end this today by, by saying, if you're in that place and you're, you're saying, I really need to hear from God, but I'm not hearing, ask yourself, what was the last thing that God said to you and you knew it was the Lord? Go back to that. Take care of that and watch what happens as you go forward. With that, we're going to go ahead and close in prayer. Let's pray. Father, as we wrap this up today, we, we ask, Lord, for, for us as we follow you, like Joseph, we want to be righteous. We want our hearts to be right with you. We want to be the people who act on what you say. We want to be the people who are watching for what you're doing, like the Magi. We want, God, you to give us the next step. And yet for some of us, we're here and we're saying, but I'm not hearing. Lord, remind us, what was the last thing that you told us? What was the last step that you gave us? And Father, help us to go back to that and take care of that. And then Father, as we move forward, we pray God that you would give our next step. Father, I thank you for each and every person who's here today. Keep us till we meet again. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and all God's people said, God bless you guys. See you next time.